So uh, we have finished our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, uh, the series that took us through looking at how we grow in maturity together as a community of those who follow Jesus. And today we're starting a new series. And the series, this series is going to take us through the fall, and we're calling it God's Big Picture. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be focusing on the major resource that we have as a community of followers of Jesus to guide us to his will and to help us follow him. That's the Bible. So we're doing a sermon series uh, that's going to be a Bible overview. And what, what we're especially going to focus on and what we're going to emphasize is seeing the Bible as one continuous narrative. So when I say, hey, we're going we're gonna to do a sermon series on the whole Bible, your first response might be, that's too long. <laughs> How are you possibly going to do that? What we're going to do is we're going to start with the Old Testament and we're going to hit highlights so that with an emphasis on the continuity and the continuation and the development of what God is doing in bringing redemption, a redemption that will ultimately be accomplished and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And it's really amazing because what you'll find is even in creation, you see hints of Jesus. Even in Abraham's life, you see hints of Jesus. Even in Moses's life and in the people of Israel, you see hints of Jesus. And what I have uh, begun chosen for today's text to introduce this series, and I should say that it's a series that's also corresponding with the study that we're doing in the home meetings. So all of the home meetings will be looking through the Old Testament. We're calling the series From Creation to New Creation. We're looking at ways that these stories in the Old Testament are not disconnected, but connected stories, and how they shape us and transform us by God's grace. As we do that, I've I've chosen Psalm 1 for the introduction. And the reason I've chosen Psalm 1 for the introduction is this. Psalm 1 presents us with a very bold claim. It basically says there's two types of people in the world. There's two ways that you can live. One way is happy, the way of happiness. He uses the word blessed. A better translation is probably happy. Or misery. And he says the only thing that distinguishes the two is those who listen to and follow God's word versus those who do not listen to and do not follow and do not submit themselves to God's word. And when, when you deal with a word like happy, I think it's a loaded word. So I've got to admit, I mean, we're like probably the most cynical generation. So when you say happy, everybody's suddenly like, no, happiness is unattainable. Happiness is impossible. Happiness, I've been promised happiness. People have told me to look within that I could find happiness. Um, my kindergarten, from kindergarten all the way through college, people have been telling me this, um, but I still can't find it. And what I want to remind you is the psalmist actually, he doesn't downplay that. He takes that up a notch. He says, not only is true happiness possible, it's found in a book. And we've got it from the very outset, we've got to say, okay, hold on a minute. There's some challenges to believing that there. There's some things that make that extraordinarily difficult to believe as a contemporary American. First of all, we don't always understand the Bible. We don't always understand the Bible. Let me give you some examples. First of all, sometimes we think of it as too serious, too sober, too somber. Do you remember in, uh, have you guys all seen Monty Python, The Quest for the Holy Grail? You remember at the very beginning, like the little cartoon picture of God comes down out of the clouds and he says, stop that groveling. If there's one thing I hate, it's groveling. It's like the Psalms. They're so miserably depressing. 
I can actually quote the whole movie. I know it's hard to believe, but I was a dork. We think it's too serious. Um, or let me give you another example. My wife, she became a Christian when she was in her 20s. And one time she was on a trip with some of her friends, and her friends were kind of going through her stuff. I don't know exactly what was going on there, but they were flipping through her Bible, and they landed, of course, in Leviticus and just said, hey, what's all this blood about? What's all this sacrifice about? Why would anybody want to have anything to do with blood and sacrifice? Why would anyone choose to read this stuff? Uh, or a more typical caricature may be that the God of the Old Testament is filled with wrath and warfare and anger and has no connection to the New Testament God of peace and of love and of justice. Here's what I think is interesting. If we could take it up even another notch, even the parts of the Bible that you understand, I think you may find constraining or even distasteful. So a lot of times when we think of the Bible, what we jump to immediately, it would be really interesting to kind of play the word association game. Bible, what do you think of? Um, I think a lot of people, maybe even you, think of laws and commands and mostly the negative ones. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And we look at the Bible as a collection of sayings or maxims or worse, laws and rules. And I think it, it's fair to say that there's a good number of people in our culture today that even look at Christianity as um, Victorian, as moralistic. They think of ladies in long dresses. They think of prudish behavior, Christian bookstores with little teacups and doilies. I'm really not sure why they do that. Um, or Catholic schools with nuns hitting people on the back of the neck. Um, and then on top of that, so we don't understand the Bible... We find it constraining or distasteful, and then on top of that, it seems really distant and removed and hard to apply. So you pick it up and you turn it to a passage at random, and you see uh, Paul saying to Timothy, hey, bring me my parchment. And you're kind of like, what can I do with that? I don't know what to do. How does that help me in my life? Or you see little groups and nations of people worshiping idols, little statues, and you think, we don't do that too often in our culture. I'm not sure how that works today. But Psalm 1 teaches us that God himself is faithful, God is trustworthy, God offers true happiness, and so he's calling you to trust in his word to find that true happiness. And we've got to take that at face value and examine it. And so we're going to ask three questions as we go through Psalm 1. First of all, what is this word? What is the word? What is the Bible? How do we make sense of it? How do we understand it? Can it really help me? How can we see it holistically? Secondly, not, we can't stop there. We also have to ask, how is it possible that I can delight in it, that I can find some joy in it, that it can actually be something that's freeing instead of something that's constraining? And thirdly, how do I apply it? How am I going to apply these things to my present life? How am I going to develop a real relationship with the living God and follow his son Jesus? through a study of the Bible and thinking through it. Okay, so let's look at point number one. What does it mean to know his word? Take a look back at the psalm. The psalm says this. It says, happy is the man. I'm going to translate blessed as happy. It, it can be translated a number of ways. Happy, joyful, blessed, fulfilled. 
happy is the man, and then it lists a bunch of things that that man doesn't do. We're going to come back to those. Okay? So hang on to those. Happy is the man, look at verse 2, who delights in the law of the Lord. And because of this, all sorts of wonderful things happen. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. He is prosperous. He bears fruit. And he will stand in judgment. He'll have life. The Lord is watching over and protecting him. I want to focus on two words, happy and law. First of all, happiness to the Israelite does not mean uh, some sort of like trite oblivion. I think sometimes we think of someone who's happy as someone who's happy all the time, who's kind of clapping a lot and um, sort of empty and hollow and shallow. For the psalmist, it means a state of total well-being. It means peace. It means lacking nothing. It means knowing God. It means having a full life and a full family. And then secondly, I want to look at the word law. So what is it that will bring us this true fullness? What is it that will bring us this true happiness? And the word law is a translation of the Hebrew word Torah. And Torah has a precise meaning, a specific technical definition, and it also has a more general or broad meaning. The technical definition of law, of Torah, is that which is contained in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the broader sense, the broader definition would mean any teaching, any guidelines, any instructions that are rooted in that law. Okay, is everybody with me? You see those two senses? Both are at work here. Both are in play. Okay, both levels of meaning. The psalmist wants the reader to meditate on the law, on the first five books of the Bible. But he also wants them to meditate on all the wise instruction rooted in or founded in the law. And you could really, that covers the entire Bible. Because you have the first five books there, which are law. And then you have a whole set of writings, which are explanations on and meditations of the law. And then you also have a set of prophecies, which are talking about calling people back to the law and fulfilling that law. So in other words, basically we can summarize this just by saying what, what, the, what the psalmist is saying is, blessed is the man who listens to God's law. Blessed is the man who listens to his instruction. Blessed is the man who listens to his word. Blessed is the man who listens to his revelation, his teaching, because in them you can know the author of true happiness. All right, now, here's the fascinating thing about all that. Here's the fascinating thing. It's almost misleading to call this law because 40% of the Old Testament is actually narrative. 40% of the Old Testament is actually stories. And um, as I was saying earlier, many people think of the Bible only as a book of rules. They think of it only as a, a, a sort of a self-help book. But it's not those things. It's a story. It's a story of a loving God who created the universe and rules it as king. It's the story of humans who he created, who rejected his rule, who rejected his kingly, his, his kingly status and wanted to set themselves up as would-be kings. And it's the story of this God who is restoring broken would-be kings to their rightful place as his faithful children. You could summarize the whole Bible with three words, maybe four if you need to. Creation, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Fall, that's what happened and set things wrong in chapter 3. And then from Genesis 4 on, redemption. 
what God does to heal and to help and to restore broken sinners to himself. And if you tack Revelation 21 and 22 onto the end, you can say consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and then the bringing together of all things, setting all things in order at the very end. And you have to understand Psalms, you have to understand law, you have to understand sacrifices all within that framework, within the context of that story. So when God calls you to delight in his word, he's calling, your, he's calling you to find yourself in his story. He's calling you to see yourself as a participant in this story. And everyone is looking for um, an explanatory narrative, especially these days. It's one of these, I may have used this as a sermon illustration before, but it's one of the reasons we like movies like Lord of the Rings. It's why we like movies like Star Wars. We all want to see ourselves as Frodo. We all want to see ourselves as Luke Skywalker. Why? Because those guys have meaning in a cosmic drama. What they do matters in the end of the world. What they do matters to all of humanity. And our culture is offering counterfeit narratives. It's offering false and pale imitations of the true narrative. It's offering Darwinian evolution. It's offering secular humanism. It's offering Freudian psychology. It's offering rationalism. And those things are not neutral. They shape and they influence you. Each of those things provides an explanation of where you came from, what went wrong, and how things are going to get improved. They attempt to do what the Bible does to show us how life works. And listen, seeing the Bible as a grand and explanatory narrative is helpful. It has a number of implications. Let me list three or four at least for you. First of all, the, the biblical narrative offers you meaning. It offers you purpose in a culture consumed with cause and effect. I know I've said this before. We're always trying to explain things by saying, this is what caused the problem, therefore I understand it. We have a very scientific way of thinking. The, the best example of that for me was Hurricane Katrina. Every time you turned on the news, they would say, why did this happen? Because someone didn't build the levee strong enough. And that's it. We've explained the situation. Or a lot of times, if you go to see a counselor, they may tell you, the reason your life is so screwed up is because of something that your parents did to you. But any narrative that doesn't offer a purpose is kind of like saying, uh, what's a watch for? And then just saying, well, it's a bunch of little wheels spinning over here that cause the other wheels to spin over here. It doesn't make sense unless you say a watch is there to tell time. And you were created with purpose. You were created with dignity. You were created to worship the living God. He has called you to worship him. Therefore, you have purpose, inherent worth, and dignity. And in, in our culture that has so much trouble treating people with dignity and finding this dignity, he's given you a job to do. So that means that um, he's, he's asked you to care for his creation, to care for his kingdom. That means if you're a teacher or you're a social worker or you're a banker or you pour coffee for a living, you can do those things for his glory. It's a part of cultivating the creation that he has given us. Secondly, stories address us on every level. They address us on the physical, the intellectual, the emotional. Sometimes we just do one or the other. We get too intellectual and everything's so abstract. Or sometimes we get too emotional and everything just causes us to get weepy. But this is the way I say it. Um, the Bible, if you read the Bible, what you're going to do is you're going to find all sorts of blood, sex, dirt, and tears. 
It's all over the place. It's gritty. It is a gritty book. It's a gritty book. All the men know that because when they were in middle school, they would sit in their rooms alone flipping through to find the gritty pages. I never did that. (laughs) We have a God who enters into the mess, and what he's doing is he's inviting you to bring your blood and to bring your sex and to bring your dirt and to bring your tears to him and to engage with him in those things. There is no shame. There is no suffering. There is no abuse that he will not enter into to heal and to restore and to return you to the purpose for which he has created you. This is a very kind and very loving God who does this for us. Thirdly, participants in these stories are not critics of the story. What have we done? Especially the college educated, especially the grad school educated, we have been trained to stand over texts and to look down on them and and to to critique them and to correct them and to say, yes, I'll take this, no, I won't take that, and to suspect that the author is dishonest and trying to sell us a bill of goods. But what the Bible is doing is it's saying, take yourself and put yourself underneath it. Put yourself beneath this story. Allow it to critique you. Allow it to evaluate you, especially in places where you disagree with it, especially in places where you need to change and you need to be transformed. It is inviting you to enter into its world, and you can't discard it. You can't just stand over here and say, prophecy, no, that can never be true. I have never, I can never believe in that, until you have taken it on its own terms and said, prophesy to me, speak to me. I want to know the living God through this book and through his word. Okay, let's move on to point two. You see, we not only need to know his word, this big picture perspective, but Psalm 1 is also calling us to delight in it, to delight in it. And a problem almost immediately, another problem, I know this sermon is filled with problems, a problem immediately presents itself. What if I can't? What if I've tried? What if I've failed? What if it's a burden? How many of you have sat down, opened your Bible? I'm going to start with Genesis 1 and go all the way through and made it to about chapter 12 and quit. Or uh, you've looked at other places and other parts and felt like they were being imposed upon you rather than bringing you joy and happiness. I think then you're folks who can go back to Psalm 1 and you look at the two paths and you say, I get it. I get that there's happiness. I get that there's misery. I see that there's one group... If you look back at Psalm 1, there is one group that's avoiding the influence of other people. It's, they're delighting in the law. They're like a growing tree protected eternally. And I see that there has to then be an alternative. A second group who does listen to the advice of, wicked, of the wicked, see they're, they're walking in their counsel. And then who is actually going with sinners on their way to wherever they're going to be. So much so that they are hardened and sit in the seat of scoffers and become mockers themselves. Those who are um, making fun of the word, those who are leading others astray. And notice that it says that group is like something weight, they're, they're like chaff. They're something weightless. They're vulnerable. They're useless. They'll come to ruin, to destruction. But how many of you ever thought this? No matter how hard I've ever tried to follow the path of the faithful, I always end up following the path of the wicked. No matter how hard I've tried to follow the path of the faithful, I get it. I get that there's two paths, happiness and misery, but I find myself miserable. I keep failing. 
and it's frustrating. And this, this applies to Christians and non-Christians. Even if you're not a Christian here today, you probably are prone to try to live up to a set of standards that you've been given by your parents or that you've been given by your peers or that you've made for yourself. And then your life becomes filled with what I call the shoulds, which are, are weighty, guilt-inducing things in your life. And so you might say something like, I should have gotten a better job by now. You may say, I should have been married by now. You may say, I should not have credit card debt. You may say any of these things or other things. And then you measure yourself and you measure everyone around you based on performance, how well they're living up to the standard that you have set for yourself. And the standard is a small one. It's the size of your own heart. And for those of you who are Christians, it's not good news, it's bad news, actually. What happens for Christians is the pressure and the weight and the burden feels heavier. It feels heavier at first. Hang with me for a couple seconds and I'll explain this. You sort of think, it's not my parents, it's not my peers, it's not myself, it's God who demands performance. It's God who's looking down from on high and saying, I should read my Bible. I should love it. I should evangelize. I should pray more. I should, I should, I should. And, and the consequences are higher. If not, it's not only that I, I'm going to be estranged from my parents, but then he will disapprove of me. He will not accept me as his child. But for both the Christian and for the non-Christian, you will never live up to your own set of standards. You will never live up to your own performance or the standards that you think God is placing on you because God is demanding more than just performance. God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. What does he want? He wants not just behavior, not just performance, but radical heart change. How many, of us, how many of us have loved God with all our hearts this morning or have loved our neighbors as ourselves? You see, we all have a heart problem. We all have a guilty record that is calling out against us. We all have a sinful nature that's condemning us. But we haven't finished the story. We haven't finished the story. We've only gotten so far. Have you noticed that? The New Testament makes clear that there is hope for you in the person of Jesus Christ. There's hope for you in the climax of the story. There's hope for you in where redemption is going, and it's going towards the person of Jesus, who is the promised Messiah. Listen, the Israelites were looking for a perfect king, a righteous king, a blessed king, a happy king. That means one who could fulfill the law and lead them in fulfilling the law. They were looking for the truly happy man. And human king after human king disappointed them and failed them. And if you read over Psalm 1 again, you'll see that they need a king like Psalm 1 describes. One that was happy. One that was blessed. One that did not listen to the advice of the wicked. One that did not walk on the way of sinners. One that, that did not sit in the seat of scoffers. And the New Testament makes clear. The New Testament writers say, Jesus Christ is this man. Jesus Christ is the only happy man that the world has ever known. He says in Matthew, I have come to fulfill the law. 
I have come to fulfill the law. And the writer of Hebrews says, all those sacrifices, they're not necessary anymore because Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. And he says in John, all that Old Testament scripture, all that story, everything that was leading up to this point, it is all bearing witness about me. He's the king that they were waiting for. He's the only happy man. Listen, he's the only, Jesus Christ is the only one in human history who was planted so close to the streams of righteousness that are his father that he would not sin. He's the only righteous man. Not only that, listen, he would take the penalty of the wicked onto himself. He's the only righteous man who would say, I will take on your words. I will take on your ways. I will take on your scoffing as they spit upon him, as they mocked him, as they nailed him to a cross. He is the tree that became the chaff for you to invite you to follow him. And he says, listen, I'm going to take your record. I will take your record upon me. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your shame. All of the not being able to live up for these things, all of the not being able to fulfill the shoulds in your life and raising from the dead to eternal righteousness, which is also eternal happiness. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'm going to give you an entirely new record. He says, I am going to give you the spirit, which is the streams of righteousness that will allow you to enable you to obey the law. It will enable you to put an end to all of your false standards and all of your false expectations. And I was very encouraged. I was very excited this morning with some of the songs that we were singing. They just lifted us up to thinking about what this risen savior has power to do. He has power to heal. He has power to transform. And he is inviting you to find your righteousness in him. True freedom only appears constraining because of how self-righteous we are. Let me give you an illustration of that. That was kind of a loaded statement. We are a lot like fish in a fish tank swimming around in the water that's giving us life. And we think... I don't have enough room to move. I don't have enough room to breathe. And so we're trying to, like, jump out of the fish tank onto the side of the... Have you ever seen a fish actually do that? They'll try. you got to watch them. Jumping out onto the counter. Oh, now I've got more space. Now things are going to be more free. But it's only going to lead to death. It's only going to lead to destruction. It's only going to lead to ruin. You see, we're not choosing in this life between constraint and between no constraint. It's what explanatory narrative will you be bound by? The one that gives you eternal life, the one that gives you rivers of living water, or the one that will lead to destruction. Another um, analogy would be a piano player. Yes, the piano player binds herself, constrains herself by practice day in and day out, but it's for the reward of flourishing, the reward of becoming the person that she was meant to be and who she was created to be. And Jesus is calling you to find freedom in him from all the burden and all the guilt and all the fear that you carry around with you and to submit to his rule. He's, he's inviting you to follow him. What are we doing here? We're here to follow Jesus. And some of us may have been following Jesus for a long time. Some of us may never have followed Jesus, but the invitation is there. Let him be the king of your life. And looking at the Bible is, is, is a way into that, to hear what he has to say and to meet him there.
So you're invited to read the Bible as often as you can. Look into it. Find it. Explore it. Pray through it. Look for Jesus there. Go to meet him and to know him and to love him and to worship him and open yourself up. That's what it means by meditate. Meditate doesn't mean um, sit alone under a tree and sort of reflect on how life should be. It means chew on the words, say them over and over silently to yourself, think them through, work them out, understand what they are. And hopefully our home meetings this year will be an opportunity for you to do that, Um, not because we worship a book, but because the book points us to the Savior. And what these home meetings are supposed to be about is engaging with that risen Savior, with that living Jesus, meeting him there, finding him there, knowing him there. And being transformed there. One group of sinners together with other sinners. Finding the grace that Jesus has provided. Um, I'd like to conclude with uh, a brief illustration. One way I think that um, you can actually take what we've learned and apply it. So this stuff can get kind of heady or intellectual. And so the way I always test to see if these things work is I try to apply them to my own kids. And I know you guys, a lot of you don't have kids, most of you. But I'm going to walk through in just two or three minutes what I do to talk my kids through a problem when they're sinning against each other or frustrated with each other. And I would ask you, you might even jot these questions down, but what you can do is um, ask these questions to yourself if you don't have kids. Okay? I find the Bible to be extremely applicable. For those of you who don't know, I have three kids. They're five, seven, and nine. So there's a lot of nonsense at our house from time to time. <laughs> One of them's still sitting here, so. They fight regularly. They get on each other's nerves. They take each other's toys. They sit in each other's seats. Controversies abound. And anytime the kids are fighting or frustrated or complaining, I'll ask them a set of questions. So the first question is this. Are you happy or are you miserable? And it may sound like a simple question, but I'm getting them to evaluate their own hearts. And I've never had a miserable kid say happy. (laughs) They all know. (laughs) They're crying. Miserable. I know. I'm miserable. They'll be honest. They'll tell you the truth. Sometimes I'll even draw a happy face and a sad face. Which one are you? And then the second thing I'll do is I'll say, do you know why you're miserable? And that's something that's a little harder for them to do on their own. No. I don't know. So I'll usually give them a little help, and I'll say something like, did you want something you didn't get? Did you love that toy more than, more than you love your brother? Were you letting your desires control you? That's a little over their head. <laughs> it's not over your heads, though. And then here's what I say. I actually insert here, you have made yourself miserable. I think you've made yourself miserable by wanting these things more. And then I'll say, hey, who do you think could help or what do you think could help? And they'll usually say something like mom or dad. And this is a great golden moment because then I get to say, yeah, I can try to help. But did you know dad has the same problem? Dad struggles with the same things. I love things more than God sometimes. I don't treat your mother very well sometimes. Sometimes I don't treat you guys very well. You know what we need? We need the happiest person that's ever lived. 
And so I'll say, and they all know the answer by now, <laughs> who's the only happy person that's ever lived? Jesus. <laughs> they know, they're ready, they, they, we've done it enough. And I say, you have to look to him. Look to the person who got these things right. He can help you get these things right. Look for the person who got these things right. He can take away how often you're getting these things wrong. He's the only one who has the power. He's the only one who can enter in. Part of the problem with our parenting is we spend 18 years giving kids law, 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 law. And when they're 18, we say grace, Jesus, and they don't get it. And we wonder why. And you may have grown up in a household like that. You may have gone to a Christian school like that. You may have a family that's like that. But Jesus needs to be entered in every step of the way. He is the only hope. He is the only resource so that we can turn in prayer and say, Jesus, make it right. Jesus, will you help me to forgive this other person? And then they can go and go to the brother and say, I'm sorry, I was loving you more than I was loving. Uh, I was loving the toy more than I was loving you and more than I was loving God. Will you forgive me? They don't always get it that perfectly, <laughs> but they get the point. The point is, who can help? Jesus is the only one who can help. He's the only one who points us forward, who points us to God, who gives us access to God, and who will give us a truly happy life. As constraining as we may feel it is, bind me to that God. Bind me to his cross. Bind me to his empty tomb. Um, find hope and joy and peace in him. As we uh, prepare to come to the communion table, I would just invite you guys to think your way through some of those issues. Ask yourself the question, this morning, am I happy or am I miserable? What is it that's making me miserable? Dave, at the very beginning, said, you're probably putting something in God's place. Invite him through this meal to set it aside, to set it aside and look to him to worship him. Sometimes when we come to communion, we're so uh, somber and serious, and we probably give people the impression that Christians are somber and serious, but happiness is found therein, if I could say it that way. Happiness is found in the, in the body of the one who died and in the victory and the happiness that he now lives in. So come looking for happiness and looking for joy and looking for peace, even as you constrain yourself to follow him, the king who would die for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are the only happy man, and we confess that you have given us the words of life that are in the Bible, and that it's a huge story that ends with you. And I'm excited about that story because it means that I can know you and follow you and love you, and I do a terrible job at it. Redeem me, repair me, restore me, make me happy in you, not in this wretched self that I am. Help us all as a community to grow in following you, and help us to find joy. Help us to find joy in places we never expected it, in a book, in a meal, in each other with all of our flaws and all of our faults. And we know that these gifts and these blessings come from you. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.